You're listening to the Pearls of Wisdom podcast on Cool Tea Collective, where we share stories for, by, and about Asian millennials. My name is Natasha Jung, and I'm your host. In this episode, we sit down virtually with Lauren Toyota of Much Music and MTV Canada fame, or if you're a foodie, her YouTube channel and community featuring delicious vegan comfort food, Hot for Food. I get to chat with Lauren about her identity as a fourth-generation Japanese-Canadian and what she's learned about racial justice over the last year. And of course, we'll talk about her newest book, Hot for Food, All Day, available starting March 16th. You can check out this story and more for Buy and About Asian Millennials on our website at coldteacollective.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, newsletter, and follow us on social media at Cold Tea Collective for more pearls of wisdom. Hey everyone, I'm Natasha from Cold Tea Collective, and we're sitting down virtually with Lauren Toyota of Hot for Food. Now, I've been a fan of her since uh, 2005 when, fun fact, we actually used to work together on a show called 969 on Razor TV a lifetime ago. Um, it was a lifestyle teen show focused on pop culture that was being shot in Vancouver. Okay, so 16 years ago, Lauren, I got to say, we were literally babies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Lauren, you were, if I recall correctly, you were a new producer and a host. And I was an intern just kind of learning the ropes. I was, I, I'd always like watch you do your segments and I'd think, wow, she's so confident, so cool so authentically herself and fresh out of high school me because that's actually how old I was at that time was all like um hi like in the corner (laughs) just trying to watch you do your thing and and trying to absorb as much as I could um and then after your work on 969 um you went to a couple different places uh including City TV Vancouver you also made the move to the much loved much music fashion television MTV Canada And I got to say, you definitely ignited some sparks for young Asian Canadian women who hopefully have seen a little bit of themselves in you on screen. And after an incredible decade on broadcast television, Lauren pivoted to another passion of hers, food. Lauren, you are the host and author of Hot for Food, and you have been named one of Canada's most influential vegans. Your very first book, Vegan Comfort Classics, 101 Recipes to Feed Your Face, earned a top spot as the number one selling cookbook in the U.S. the week of release in 2018. It also ranked number three on the Global Mail's bestseller list. Accolades to make any Asian parent proud, as we can probably guess. (laughs) (laughs) And now we're going to be talking today about your upcoming book, Hot for Food All Day. Now, this book dives deep into the concept of leveling up leftovers because, you know, let's be honest, Dealing with leftovers is not an easy feat. And to actually recreate easy and new recipes from leftovers is even like more difficult. So we're excited to dive into that a little bit more. We'll get into that in a little bit. But without further ado, Lauren, welcome to the Pearls of Wisdom podcast. Oh my gosh. Hi, Natasha. You Hi. <laughs> well, you made us both feel old. We were like 16 years ago, which is <laughs> like what I barely remember. Uh, can I just say... I I know you had obviously broadcasting aspirations, but you definitely have a great voice for this. Oh my gosh, that means so much to me coming from you. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, I haven't talked to you in so long and I'm like, wow, she's like a professional podcaster or like you have a good voice that's like conversational, but like professional, has a good tone to it. 
Yeah, I really like that was good. Oh. That was a good intro. <laughs> oh my gosh, thank you so much. That means the world to me. Everyone has a different voice, right? And how you yeah. choose to use it, you know? This is how I choose to use it and it's been fun like getting to have conversations with uh, you know folks such as yourself and but that means a lot to me. So maybe if you if you need a, an audio book narrator <laughs> for whatever reason and you're super busy, I'm more than happy to read step 1 preheat the oven. I'm more than happy to do that. Yeah, that's so funny because I always wondered, like, could there be an audio version of me reading my cookbook? Would that be crazy? <laughs> yeah. But you know what, though? Because I mean, like, if people are, you know, like cooking along, right, they, yeah. you know, it might be easier and if their hands are full and all that kind of stuff too. So I don't know, it could be another Well, what about, thing. you know, I never, I haven't thought about this. But what about visually impaired people? I mean, I don't know oh, yeah. that they can use my cookbook. So yeah, I Absolutely. have not thought about this and I really should and ask the publisher, how do we, how do we come up with a cool solution to that? But anyway, I guess yeah. we can, I'll add that to my list of to-dos. <laughs> yeah, no, and I think you bring up a really good point, just making, I mean, food, like you want to make it accessible as possible, mm -hmm. but then like even just the, you know, accessibility to, you know, great recipes and actually being able to make them. That's it. That's a huge issue. Yeah. So hopefully uh, you're able to, to figure something out with that. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I love how we're coming up with new ideas on the fly. <laughs> it never stops. Yeah. No, it really doesn't. That's, that's great. So I mean, uh, you know, as, as I was saying that kind of before we started recording here, it's been 16 years, mm -hmm. you, you know, you're in LA now. Um, you've gone through quite a journey in that time. And I, I really did like breeze through your career journey in your intro, but what a journey it has been. Big question to start you off here. Mm -hmm. Have there been any moments in your career where you were just like, is this even real? Like what is happening to me right now? Yeah. I mean, I think all the time, like, I mean, prior to even getting into television, you know, you're figuring yourself out. I mean, I, my, my sights were set on getting into television somehow but I didn't take the traditional path. Like I didn't go to broadcasting school to like learn how to do any of that stuff. Mm. Uh, really getting that job kind of plucked out of obscurity at 969 and moving to Vancouver from Toronto was the first step and the first moment of like, oh my God, it's actually happening the way I like, it's not a realistic thing to say, well, someone will just take a chance on me and give me a TV job. Yeah. <laughs> like, but that is exactly what happened. And that's kind of what I hoped would happen. So that was first off, like you, you know, you saying you're in high school and you, you were just green. I mean, I was exactly the same. I was just older, you know, you and I were essentially the same, meaning no, like I had no experience. I was just getting plucked out of obscurity and brought into this TV show. So other than an age difference, which maybe lends a little bit more to experience, like I pretty much was an intern. They offered me a one day a week for yeah. the first three months and I got paid a yeah. hundred dollars a week oh, wow. for one day. So I, I was essentially an intern, but <laughs> yeah. given this platform, like said, okay, yeah, we are hiring you as a host, but now you also have to produce. And I didn't even understand what that meant. So it was like, I was going to school. Wow learning how to do all that. So it makes me feel kind of weird because it's like, yes, I was pretty much the same as all as the interns, but I was just yeah. getting a bit bigger of an opportunity for whatever reason. And, um, you know, I applied and I yeah. sent in an audition tape and that's how they saw me. But yeah, that was the first moment of like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening to, you know, working my way through doing so many different things there. And then getting other TV show opportunities like at City TV to even like losing my job in 2008 when I worked for Going Coastal at Much Music. That was like, what's happening like this was not the plan i was supposed to keep going you know i felt like i was just getting my name out there at that time in 2008 and then i sort of the rug gets pulled out from under you so there's been a lot of pretty crazy moments and it's certainly this untraditional 
I guess, path of having accomplished my dreams, you know, and I guess that's just, I guess maybe that's how it's supposed to work. Like you can't plan it. You can't really force anything to go the way you want, especially in an industry like this, where it's all very, it's all very um, fickle a little bit, you know, it's based on how you look sometimes, you know, it's not based on talent or skill. Sometimes it just comes down to, oh, well, she has dark hair and that girl has blonde hair. Like, let's. Do you think that's still the case? You know, that, you know, people are, or I guess like um, like producers and, and and casting agents and all that are they still making a ton of their decisions based on looks? I mean, I, I guess certainly it's a part of it, especially if you're being on mm-hmm. camera. But I mean, I'm hoping that I mean in 2021, especially mm-hmm. around a, a lot of conversation around diversity, equity, mm-hmm. and inclusion, people are looking beyond that. But yeah, do you th- do you think that's still the mm-hmm. case? It, it seems like it's a good mix bag still because like here's the thing: I know that partly why I got that job at 969 is because I'm not white and blonde it's because I was Asian like I feel like when I looked at the cast that existed at that show that I knew of I was sort of like went in with a lot of confidence going well they don't have anybody that looks like me on the show yeah they're they're gonna have to hire somebody that looks like me on the show because they don't have a diverse enough cast so in that case I used that to my advantage or kind of felt like it was an advantage. Mm-hmm. In other cases, I know like at Much Music, once I got further down in my career, I will say I think there were some instances where the same thing happened, where it was to my advantage that I am the background that I am. And in some cases, I think it was a disadvantage that I'm not the, I don't know, pretty blonde girl. Yeah, I do think it's changing. We've seen it change. And we've seen it change quite drastically in the last couple mm-hmm. of years, especially with Asians in mainstream media and movies and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Although that woman, first Asian woman to win a Golden Globe the other day, yeah, you know, yeah. you're like, that's the first, like, just now, 2021? Like, it's crazy. Like, come on. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's hard for me to, I, you know, I only have my own stories and experience, but I feel like it's been a bit of both. Like, where mm-hmm. sometimes I know that it's advantageous that I look the way I do, that I'm, that I'm, part Asian and other times I can see that it did work to my disadvantage, but it just depended. Mm-hmm. And so um, for those that are either, you know, listening or watching uh, want to get to know a little bit more about you, what is your background? What is your heritage? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm half Japanese. So my dad's Japanese, hence my last name, Toyota. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am what's called Yonsei, which is fourth generation Japanese Canadian. So I'm pretty Canadian, not very Japanese. <laughs> mm-hmm. And my mom is born in Canada, but her background, her background's like a mix of Scottish English. Gotcha. Gotcha. And um, I was actually going to save these, these questions for a little bit later, but I mean, I saw a video, it was one of your Ask Lauren videos where you talked about uh, a trip where you learned a little bit about your, your Japanese Canadian history. Would love to hear a little bit more about your journey and exploring your identity. It's a funny thing because I think I, I spent a lot of my life not wanting to associate with the Japanese part of my identity. Very much found myself in a situation where I was told, you know, being Asian was negative thing, got made fun of, got called racial slurs. So really wanted to disassociate with it. Really put a lot of effort into, I think, assimilating or disguising or trying to just assimilate to whiteness. Assimilate is a word that I've only started using since last year, since everyone was talking about anti-racism and racial Mm -hmm. justice, because I was like, oh my God, like I've spent my whole life trying to do that without really consciously recognizing that. Do you think it was a little bit easier for you to do that because you are, yeah, half and like, and I would say um, what's also called white passing? 
because you could you could possibly pass for you know yes. maybe not even not even Asian, right? So yeah, it's so weird. I have such a funny thing with this whole relationship because I spent my younger days and my, most of my life always being identified as Asian. So I didn't feel mm. like I was white passing. Okay. I understand that I am. I understand from like maybe in this more modern understanding we have of it now in the last. 10 years, I get that. But growing up, I was very much told like, you're Asian or what are you? Or look at your, uh, I don't want to say the word, but like your eyes, right? They would say the mm. racial slur word for the eyes. And, mm. and so I, I was constantly being told you're Asian. So, so to me, a white passing thing made no sense, but I, I had mm. a lot of white friends and more affluent white friends. And so my friends would say, Oh, I didn't even know you were Asian or you don't seem Asian. Like all these things that you're like, Oh my God, like that's the worst thing you could say, because then you're basically saying, Oh, because I'm not white. Uh, that makes me less than. So I dealt with a lot of that stuff. Mm. So I was always very confused about my identity and where it fit and what was good and what was bad. But I, I certainly adopted the idea that the Asian side of me was bad and the white side of me was good, just like all biracial or any other identifying uh, race of a person feels that way, right? Mm -hmm. We're brought up in this society that does make us feel that way. So I have that experience, I would say, more than not. Now I'm understanding, of course, in more of the my later years as an older adult and, and understanding a lot of the racial justice issues being talked about currently. Yeah, I'm totally white passing. And to someone who's full Asian, they see they see how I have certain privileges over them, which mm -hmm. is why you're even asking that question, because it's true. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't my experience growing up. Do you know what I'm saying? That's what makes this all very confusing to me. And even <laughs> identifying my own privilege and all that, like, isn't something I really had done until the last year and a half. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't part of my vocabulary. That wasn't part of my, the way I walked through life. So I'm looking at things a lot differently now. And it's like, I kind of have to separate my upbringing because I don't want that to make it sound like I can sympathize or understand like what black people go through or people who aren't mixed with whiteness Mm -hmm. what they go through. Do you know what I'm saying? So it makes it hard for me to talk about because I don't really, I feel like I don't know what I'm talking about. And when you just base it on your own experience, you certainly don't want to center yourself or make it seem like your experience is the same. Yeah. I, might, I think you bring up a lot of really good points there in terms of, you know, well, thank you firstly for sharing kind mm -hmm. of, you know, a little bit more of the background of your personal journey and when it comes to identity and, you know, really in um, your learning journey as well. I mean, I think a lot of us over the last year have uh, learned a ton about, you know, racial justice and kind of where, you know, also mentioned uh, privilege, uh, where that comes mm -hmm. from and identifying that you, you do have that privilege, you know, being mixed race. But I think that is something that, is it, it is challenging for mixed race folks, especially if they are mixed race, you know, with mixed with, you know, like whiteness or like European mm -hmm. background or, mm -hmm. you know, even so it's, it's challenging because that is, there are so many other layers to that as well. Mm -hmm. And it's not that, you know, with you sharing your personal experience that you're belittling or diminishing. And I think that's something that needs to be recognized more just because you want to give empathy to a particular, you know, community, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that you don't have room to give empathy to another community mm -hmm. or try to learn about it, right? So it's not like a piece of the pie and you only have like so much care and attention to give to, or, or yeah, as, I mean, mm -hmm. it keeps saying empathy, but honestly, at the end of the day, I think that's what it comes down to, right? Yeah. It, you know, what's funny is like, I would say my younger years, I felt like the topic of my race was very front of mind because I was othered. 
But as I got mm-hmm. older, it was my goal to move away from race identifying anything. So throughout last year, I had a very hard time. Okay, now we're talking about race again. Why are we talking about race? I was that person, just like a lot of white people. Talking about race is divisive. Why are we talking? You know, because I've spent my entire life trying to like get away from that mm-hmm. because of the trauma of being identified as someone who is not white. So I've gone through a very, I, I don't have it all. I don't have anything figured out. I just, I enjoy talking about this stuff because all of us have such different experiences. Yeah, I don't, I don't have a conclusive statement there, but I just think that's, that's what I've realized about myself is that I was put into this like fragile place during last year because I felt like, oh, I'm opening up this, this gate that I decided to close a long time ago. Right. You know? Like in a way, I'm I'm wondering like, did I just decide to not see race anymore because I thought that that would make me racist if I did see race? Because everyone who saw mm-hmm. my race was being racist to me. I think you bring up a really good point there. You had dealt with all this trauma, and now that it's you know being cropped up now, like how do you how do you meaningfully engage in that conversation or meaningfully engage with yourself? To, to be reflective, to learn, uh, to accept, not even just who you are today or who you were, but who you are becoming and who you want to be. That's the tricky part for sure. And I mean, I don't know if anyone really does have the answer, but I mean, just based on kind of your, your recent learnings of yourself and, you know, racial justice, what is something that is, that I guess uh, surprised you about your, your recent learnings, like in a good way, pop, you know, maybe not a good way. Everyone's in a different place in their journey. And so I would just want to open up that space for you. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a hard question. Cause I think there's a lot and I don't know that I've parsed out each thing. Cause it, it came as quite an onslaught. And then I, you know, I was trying to do it all and got very overwhelmed, still find myself getting overwhelmed. It is overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Okay, how do I put this without, I, it's not that I'm going to say anything net bad here. I just don't know how to put it so that it makes sense. It's like having my attention called to look at Black lives intensely. I couldn't help but bring my own experience in to that, even though I'm not sure if you're supposed to, supposed to do that or not, right? It's like the focus was on Black Lives Matter, which I wholeheartedly believe and went for and totally want to help and like understand And I had never taken the time to really understand because I had my own racial identity stuff to sort out. And to be honest, never really put a ton of work into that because it works to your best advantage to really not work on that. It works to your advantage in the system of white supremacy to just align with whiteness and get through and get by by just sneaking. You know what I'm saying? Like, how can I sneak in through the side door? (laughs) Mm. (laughs) which which I have a bit of privilege to do because I'm half because I'm lighter skinned uh so just to even shift focus to a whole group that I just never otherwise would have paid this close attention to is just quite fascinating and it's a lot and I don't it's not a negative thing it's just like I couldn't have predicted this door opening. And I think it's definitely good for all of us. It's definitely good for me. But I can't look at Black Lives Matter without somehow looking at my own experience with racism. And so I don't know if that's what I'm supposed to do or not supposed to do, but that's what's happening. When I say supposed to, it's because I'm totally grappling with this, like, how do I do this work the right way? Like, I'm totally Mm. dealing with that. Like, everyone talks about, you know, we want to be perfect. We want to do it right. We don't want to make mistakes. Like, yeah, I'm dealing with that because that's the system I grew up in. So it's it's very hard. I find, like, I get stuck on how to talk about it because I certainly don't want to say anything wrong or harmful. So yeah. That, that. Yeah. No, thank, and thank you for, for trying to um, 
to to respond to that. I know it's it is a it is a big question, and I think you you did fantastic. You you definitely explained it in a way that made sense to me. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you know, similar to you, really fully understanding or trying at least to understand not even just the impact of I don't even want to call Black Lives Matter a movement. It's way more than that. But I think to really. It sounds like you've been doing the research. It sounds like you've been trying to, you're not centering yourself, it doesn't sound like, but I think for us to understand as people that are not part of the Black community, we need to, you know, once again, keyword empathy here. We need Mm to kind of understand what that meant, maybe what some of the um, experiences of a Black community um, might mean in relation to our own personal experiences to get a full or fuller, pardon me, understanding of even just like a fraction of what the Black community is going through. And with that as well, I mean, there's, of course, uh, it's been really interesting to see Black and Asian solidarity because the the two communities right now are are really just, it's going, they're going through a really traumatic time, right? Especially, you know, the Asian community, there have been so many violent attacks. I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't want to get into that specifically, but you know, just to see some solidarity amongst those two communities has been really uh, encouraging and, and hopefully we'll be able to to see more growth and, and support in that area. And, and to see the alignment between the two, like the history of yeah. Black liberation with Asian liberation, like not fully understanding that history or knowing about that and starting to learn about it and understanding mm-hmm. the concept that has been floated around social media and social justice, you know, activists online, like that Black liberation means liberation for all. Like, Yes, Absolutely. 100%. The most oppressed have to be liberated before everyone can be liberated. And so I get that. And that's why I think it, it only makes sense that each of us, including white people, have to explore their own internal experiences and that you do kind of have to center yourself in your own little world to do the work because it's deeply spiritual work, right? And so unless you look at yourself in a mirror, whether you're white or multiracial or whatever, that's part and parcel of the learning. So it isn't just reading a book of something happening outside of you and trying Mm -hmm. to empathize. It's trying to find how you can bring that internal piece to it, right? And so that's what I'm kind of, trying to do and figure out because that's the, mm-hmm. I think that's the only way to go about it I think um I think we kind of uh re-clarified things a little bit there for ourselves as, as we kind of like moved through yeah. the conversation I really like what you said there and that that makes a lot of sense I'm gonna definitely gonna noodle on that a little bit more when it comes to racial justice but um of course with that there's also you know just overall you were talking about representation I want to ask you about your mm-hmm. thoughts on ethnic diversity and more specifically Asian representation in the food influencer space. What are you yeah. seeing? And, um, you know, I guess what, you know, kind of connected to what you said earlier about seeing your, you know, your Japanese heritage as an advantage, you know, in your media career, what are you seeing in terms of Asian representation um, in the foodie space? I've definitely seen it. I feel like in my vegan community alone, there's quite a good pocket of Asian and Pacific Islander creators. I'm friendly with a lot of them. So that's good. I feel like there's a good pocket of people in and amongst the sea that is, I'm not really sharing much culinary stuff as it relates to Japanese culture, but other creators who are Korean or Chinese, they are sharing a lot of fun stuff. Like Rose Mm -hmm. from Cheap Lazy Vegan in Alberta, she does share a lot of um, cuisine from her background. Uh, The Korean vegan is amazing. If you don't follow her already on Instagram, she's amazing and she really puts her her Korean um, influence I think in the space very visibly, not just with the Mm. food, but with her storytelling. And so 
I, I do see it. And I think it's quite strong, actually, considering we're not only talking about vegan, which is a niche unto itself, but yeah. that I can see a really good group of Asian creators in that niche alone. It's funny because I've been examining, you know, what I put on display with my food and I've completely done like a white American thing. Like I make comfort food and a lot of it's based on American, white American food or fusion food and fine, guilty. But like, that's what, again, my own assimilation, my own own wanting to identify with whiteness. I mean, that must be where that comes from. I've I've sat and thought about this because I, mm. and I do feel some guilt because I'm like, I don't represent my culture at all in my food because I spent my childhood being like, get that away from me. Like I didn't want to be associated with Japanese food or culture. Like, so I'm grappling with a lot of that. It's very interesting mm. to think about that, that I don't really infuse my own Japanese background into what I do. And that it's pretty much, I mean, I grew up watching, um, I learned how to cook by watching Guy Fieri on Diners, Diners and Drives, <laughs> like Guy's Big Bite. I mean, could you be any more white and American? So it's like, yeah, I mean, that's just where I'm coming oh, from, yeah, to be quite honest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's where, you know, representation does, like, it, it makes a huge difference, right? Uh-huh. Like, because um, if you're not exposed to that at a young age, I mean, especially, you know, food is like, I mean, I think like anyone at any time in their lives can can learn learn how to cook. I certainly actually only learned how to cook last year because of the pandemic. And I also like, I have a, I have a day job outside of this as, like, as well. Mm-hmm. I'm actually on maternity leave right now, but like oh. I have a day job. But yeah, yeah, I know. Surprise. You can't really oh, see me from the, <laughs> yeah, from the, from the, uh, the shoulder down. But yeah, um, yeah I mean, like I, I work for a food company and um yeah, just like, you know, learning how to cook, you know, and, and thinking about the the food that I want to be able to cook on my own. It's it's kind of been crazy. Like it, during this pregnancy, I have been kind of uh, defaulting to just Asian comfort food, just like mm-hmm. straight up like Cantonese, like comfort classics. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really strange because I never thought that I would really crave that at all. So I thought that was a pretty interesting, but I mean, that that's a bit of an aside, but I mean, now that you have this realization, like, wow, like, mm-hmm. you know, you've kind of built this niche for yourself and it doesn't really necessarily, uh, or you haven't necessarily taken the opportunity yet to explore your Japanese heritage in your food. Mm-hmm. What are some ways you think you, like, are you interested in doing that moving forward? I mean, I know we have the, the new book coming out, so maybe mm-hmm. the book after that, I don't know, but. Mm-hmm. I just don't see myself ever doing it like full on, like making a Japanese comfort food book. I don't know maybe maybe now that we're talking about it like yeah yeah, like I think I've explored different Asian cultures food because I I do love Asian food I absolutely love Asian food I love Indian food I think when it comes to Indian cooking I certainly have not wanted to go too far down that path because there are people who are East Indian who can make the food authentically and for me to make it it's like well I don't need to do that (laughs) Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. So I always try to be careful, you know, what what am I trying to make and why am I making it? I've made, you know, bao buns and I've made dan dan noodles. And, and actually I have a girl who is working with me full time who's Chinese. So a lot of her influence made its way mm. into the recipes on Hot for Food with Asian and Chinese comfort food. So I'm happy mm. about that. She's good at cooking that stuff. And so she's brought that influence. And it's not like I've avoided it purposely. It's just more what do I crave and what do I want to eat? So I've done some, I love Asian noodle stuff. So if I do anything, mm-hmm. it's that, but I, I'm not good at making sushi just because I'm half Japanese. So it's like, I don't make yeah, sushi. No. <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> and you know, there are some things I remember eating growing up and there's a few on my list that I just haven't recreated yet. So mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, it's just not a thing that I do predominantly. And 
I think under the right circumstances, I'd explore it more, but I just don't, what I think would happen if I'm looking at it from like a big picture strategy thing. If I started just doing all Japanese, I, I feel like I would alienate a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, you bring up an interesting point. I mean, you, you said the keyword authentic a little bit earlier, right? And so what are your thoughts around um, the recipe development? You know, there's a ton of creative license that you have, I think, but uh -huh. then when it comes to creating something, you know, like any ethnic foods, like like where where can you draw the line like how authentic mm. do you need to be mm -hmm. and where can you actually take that creative license yeah i do think that we get into pretty bad territory when we start policing like you know there's a lot of talk about the appropriation of recipes and bon appetit mm -hmm. was put under fire in new york times yeah. and stuff right for like making something that's an indian curry and calling it a stew <clears throat> okay i get that we start telling people that they can't make japanese fusion or they can't do fusion because they're white I just think we're going into like limiting territory there. You know, the best foods come from the creative liberty and creative freedom that chefs have to mm -hmm. travel the world, take bits and bobs from different places around the world and come up with their own ideas. And I fully support all of that. I like mash together different cuisines all the time, Chinese and Italian. There's like something in my book that's like that. I think you just want to have, you want to be able to have those ideas and run wild with them without worrying if you're going to offend somebody. I do think you can, get into offensive territory if you just start not, you know, explaining the story behind what you're doing or oversimplifying things to cater to a white audience. You know, I think there's some things we can call attention to, but I wouldn't want to become too hardcore with that because I think then we start to stifle the progress of the fact that we, we're all multicultural. We live in cities with all different types of food and have access to everything. Do you know what I mean? And that's really great, like the melting pot idea. But when I say like, if I were to just decide, okay, I'm going to just learn all about Japanese cuisine and just start making all this Japanese food content, I feel like that'd be a bad move because I'd start alienating people. People who maybe don't want to eat that kind of food. It, it doesn't necessarily have a mass appeal. Maybe I'm wrong, but I just feel like I need to kind of explore all avenues at all times and keep it open. Mm. So for me to like dedicate a year of my life to learning Japanese cuisine and the traditions of my ancestors. And then I would do that as a personal thing. Like I would take a sabbatical and do that. But I think to mm. keep my, to, to like go a little, that'd be a little off brand for this brand that I just happened to build that happens to be aligned with comfort yeah. food. And really, it is comfort food from all parts of the world. I, I say it's primarily like white American food, but like mm -hmm. it started off that way. And I think I've branched out as time has gone on. There's just so many things you can make. Absolutely. And I think it, what's what I take from that is, and I find super interesting, is that the, the recipes that, that you can develop can be a reflection of where you are in kind of your own you know, food journey, mm -hmm. um, identity journey, um, just kind of, and also like what you're craving. But what's interesting too, is that you're talking about um, the strategy that you've built for your brand with Hot for Food, right? Um, how do you balance what you want to explore creatively through your food and what your audience kind of expects and knows of you? I definitely think I probably lean more to catering to what the audience expects and knows of me or what I feel like they want. Because the only reason I really make any of this stuff or that it it resonates or I get a book deal is because I am I have <laughs> had, I have this community that I have connected with. And yeah, I think they've come to expect a certain thing from me. I think I've still managed to pivot and make little changes here and there that obviously go with just my general flow of life. Like I've moved kitchens four times and I've had a breakup and like there's things obviously I don't try to control based on my audience. They have to kind of just go along with whatever's happening in my life. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, when it comes to recipes, 
it's so hard to pin down like why I make what I make when I make it because sometimes I think I do really honor like just whatever I want to eat or something I haven't accomplished yet that I that's sort of on my wish list of things I want to make but and it's probably just because it's my brain it always tends to fit in a certain I guess column I feel like when I look at my stuff it's like it's look it's hot for food like I think I've done a good job at somehow creating a brand without really realizing what I'm doing (laughs) you absolutely have um and you wouldn't have the community that you have if if you didn't do that but I think more than that too it's I mean, even like from 16 years ago, you know, like Mm. it's, you're being yourself. Right. And I think with that, like just your, you know, being hot for food or like getting excited about food and all that is, uh, is really what drives you. Um, or at least like, you know, from what, what I've seen in in terms of of your recipes and and your content and such, it's good to hear that it doesn't feel like it's stifling or anything like that. No, I don't feel like it's stifling. And and that's the thing. If I want to make a Japanese dish, I'll make a Japanese dish. And I guess I could just never see myself because I like so much variety, I, I couldn't see myself dedicating myself to making all Japanese recipes for a period of time. Mm. Cause I'm, you know, I just don't see myself doing that. I like, mm. I, sw- I change my mind all the time. I, I want to eat this type of cuisine one day and I want to eat a totally different thing, you know, five hours later. So I think I just like variety so much that I have to kind of keep things like yeah. this revolving door kind of thing happening all the time. Speaking of variety, how did you decide what recipes actually made it into the book, Hot for Food mm. All Day? Well, I'll tell you how it kind of works. It's it's worked this way for both my books, which is with Vegan Comfort Classics and with Hot for Food All Day, you know, it starts with making the table of contents. So you essentially create the framework from which you work backwards. So the table of contents has some organization skill to it, but you've come up with the chapters you want, then you kind of fill in the recipes I want to make. And it really doesn't deviate much from that. So you know, the first book I did have to cut 15 recipes, which ended up becoming an, uh, being available as a bonus ebook for the pre-order uh, gift. And in this book, I didn't have to cut anything. Everything that was on my table of contents made it into the book. I think there was a couple of switches to a couple recipes, like very minor switches. But for the most part, this sort of wish list that I create at the beginning, just you go through and you keep going one by one, crossing them off the list. Like, okay, developed that, tested that, done. Developed that, tested that, done. Sometimes I might change like, you know, oranges for mangoes or something. That was a, not a real example, but I might switch an ingre- <laughs> a key ingredient that I thought I was right. going to use for a different key ingredient. But generally the, the dish's concept is pretty intact from the beginning like that. So I don't know if people realize, I mean, maybe other authors don't do it that way, but that's just how I've did it. No, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, it sounds, you know, as you said, like pretty organized and uh, it's it, a lot of the pre-work goes into, you know, as you said, building that table of contents and then kind of going from there. Yeah, that, that's, that's super exciting. Um, I'm really looking forward to checking out what new recipes I can learn, especially from leftovers. That's going to be, yeah. uh, sounds delicious. I was kind of reading a little bit of a description as to what's in there. Can you give us a bit of a preview as mm-hmm. to maybe like three recipes that mm-hmm. you're looking forward to sharing? Okay, here, I'll try to talk about the dishes that have like Okay, there's one that sort of has a Japanese influence. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I'll talk about the non-American food. It's like, usually there's some American, there's like fusion, right? Like junk food, fast food. I don't even know what American, American food is food of, of all cultures, I feel like. It really is. Yeah. But I have this, the Tokyo street fries, which I just made uh, live on my Instagram the other day. So you can actually go watch that if you want. Tokyo street fries has like a seasoning that you make in the book is the Tokyo popcorn seasoning, Tokyo mixed popcorn seasoning. So it's like nori, sesame, nutritional yeast, onion, 
and salt. And it creates like a nice seasoning powder that you can put on popcorn. But then I use it on these French fries. And uh, I use a spicy sriracha aioli and green onions on top. And it's just like really Ooh. simple, but it's a nice way to like dress up your French. Like I'm talking frozen French fries. You don't even have to make French fries from scratch. Then I have all green fresh rolls. So, you know, a rice paper fresh roll, which I have no clue. What is that Thai? Is that Thai inspired? I ate them a lot in Bali as well. I think different uh, Asian cultures have versions of fresh rolls. Yeah, there's, there's but, a ton. Yeah. Yeah. I did all green fresh roll. Um, so it's got like snap peas, avocado, cucumber, fresh herbs, like mint and basil and dill and some, uh, green leaf lettuce and a green curry dipping sauce. And it's super Mm. good. Like you could eat the whole plate of rolls just based on the dipping sauce alone. You know, there actually are quite a handful of Asian inspired dishes in this book. I use, (laughs) I use kabocha squash, which is a Japanese pumpkin. I love kabocha. So that's why I put it in this book. So we have miso roasted kabocha. Miso is also a really great um, Japanese pantry staple, fermented soy paste. We do a miso roasted kabocha, which you can put in your bowls, in your salads, whatever. But then I actually take the miso roasted kabocha and I transform it into three entirely different recipes. So one of them is the kabocha broth with udon noodles. So you take the kabocha broth and you actually blend it with coconut milk and a few other things like vegetable broth. And then it makes this like just this broth, this like amazing tasting creamy broth that you could put ramen noodles in. You could put any kind of noodles you want in, but I just did some grilled shiitake, some bok choy and some udon. Now that's, yeah, that's definitely some real good comfort food to me. (laughs) Yeah. And Asian inspired. Yes. Maybe I do more than I even even, even realizing. I think I've started to do it more in the last couple of years than at the beginning. Mm. I think I said that, but like, I feel like as I've grown, I've incorporated a lot more Asian comfort food because that is too what like you want to eat. I want to eat that. That like, if I'm going to order takeout, I order pad thai or pho or green curry or something like, you know, that's usually what I go to for a takeout meal. So. Oh, all sounds amazing. Um, it, it, I mean, it's a little bit, past lunchtime now, but I, I could definitely go for like a second lunch. <laughs> yeah, right. Too, right. So um, we're going to wrap up our conversation today with a couple rapid fire questions. Okay. okay. So, I mean, you know, answer as best you can. Um, you don't need to actually answer in a rapid fire way, but uh, we call them. Okay, rapid I'm not fire. good at, I'm not good at being fast. I okay, just ramble like, on and on. <laughs> <laughs> we can do that too. That's fine. Maybe I'll just kind of, you know, pretend to speed it up when I ask the questions. Okay. <laughs> So rapid fire questions with Colty Collective and Lauren Toyota. Lauren, number one, what is your favorite vegan brand? Beyond, <laughs> beyond meat. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, what advice would you give to your 25 year old self? Don't change a thing. Like you're doing it all right. Love it. Uh, number three, hot tea or cold tea? Cold tea. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure, no pressure. You could have said hot tea. <laughs> no, I just realized I drink more cold tea than I do yeah. drink hot tea. Yeah. Okay, there you go. Okay, excellent. Favorite recipe from your upcoming book? Sweet and sour rice balls. Ooh, that sounds delish. And last question here. As you know, our podcast is called Pearls of Wisdom. What is a pearl of wisdom about life, food, anything that you want to share with our audience? Oh my God. I always hate getting put on the spot because I feel like I have to come up with the most perfect pearl of wisdom. Oh my God. Just listen to yourself. You know, just listen to yourself. You know best. 
your intuition speaks loudly and softly louder when you don't listen so <laughs> listen to yourself yeah i love that excellent well thank you again so much lauren is there anything else you wanted to share before we wrap it up no just check out hot for food all day if you're looking for some yummy uh recipes to get you inspired and yeah like you said ways to transform your leftovers and get really get really creative in the kitchen i think i want to inspire people to get creative in the kitchen and really empower them to like you know figure it out and, and, and do what they want to do and not follow the rules so i think this book's going to give you that motivation excellent well i'm really looking forward to it lauren uh your book comes out uh it's called hot for food all day it's coming out march 16th there's a ton of other bonus content on your website as well including some fun uh, events too so mm-hmm. uh, definitely uh check that out and uh, other than that, like, thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, and Google, or check out coldycollective.com for more pearls of wisdom. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Natasha.